Thank you for tuning in to the Imaginative Storm Twice Five Miles radio podcast. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more on Walter's music. And thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. If you would like to reach out to me, my email is nave at jamesnave.com. I'm going as solo on this show, which is something that I've started to do more and more as time has gone on. My topic for this show is health and healing. I bring that up because health and healing is a very important aspect to the larger theme I've always addressed during these times with you. And the larger theme is creativity, and secondary to creativity is writing along with poetry. Over the past six years, I've invited many poets and writers and other creative people to muse on the way they approach their creative lives, their, their poetry lives, their lives in general. I've had a few healing arts people on the show, but not as many. So I thought today I would reflect a bit on how we can mix all of those ideas together. Of course, if you're feeling good and you're healthy and you've healed from an accident or you've healed from some traumatic injury that happened inside your psychology and you're walking along, spring is emerging and you're feeling pretty good. So you have a sense of the value of health and healing. And when you're feeling good and you're on top of your your game, if you will, your eyes are bright, it's much easier to be aware of the things around you. It's much easier to take creative actions like writing a, a terrible poem for a friend just because you don't have to worry about getting it right. You just don't care. You just make up a rhyme and on you go. Or you take a photograph or you do whatever creative thing it is you do. I'm thinking about health and healing right now because I have a new poetry slash memoir book coming out from 3 Atouse Press. The book is titled 100 Days, Poems After Cancer. The 100 Days is a reference to the 100 days I spent starting April 1st, 12 years ago, through 100 days, arriving at July the 9th. And April 1st was the first day after my surgery at Pardee Hospital in Hendersonville, North Carolina. The surgery was for prostate cancer, a very common cancer many men have, especially those who are over 40. And it can occur any time until you're 100. And like almost all cancers, if you catch it early, it's not a big, big life-threatening problem. It's still a bit of a problem. Even so, it's not a life-threatening problem, and it can be easily addressed. And of course, 
the way medicine moves as well as digital space and technology and all the rest, things happen every three or four months to improve your chances of coming out okay if you're diagnosed with prostate cancer or for that matter, any kind of disease. And before I go on, I would like to acknowledge the inequities that exist in the American healthcare system. I understand some people have more access than others. And just for the record, if I had the sovereign power, I would wave my magic wand and decree free health care for everyone all over the world. Imagine if everyone had good health and didn't have the stress around trying to survive. How productive would this world be? How dynamic would this world be? How at peace would this world be? I'll bet it would be very different than it is right now. But hey, I don't have a magic wand and I don't have that power, but I did have the power 12 years ago when I had my prostate surgery, I did have the power to employ my creative energies in the direction of making 100 pieces of writing over 100 days. Each day I would write a reflection on what was going on that day and the next day I would do the same, and the next day I would do the same. And the reason I did that was because it kept me relevant. I was healing. Fortunately, I had my cancer caught in time by Dr. David DeHole and Dr. Scott Donaldson, both of whom have practice in Hendersonville, North Carolina, and work at Party Hospital. I caught it in time. I still had to have surgery, and I still had to have my prostate removed. Even so, I was glad I had been vigilant, and I encourage anybody out there listening right now, if you are remiss in going to the doctor because you think it won't happen to me, and it might not, I encourage you to rethink that. You might as well play it safe. I played it safe, and it paid off. I encourage you to do the same thing. And when I say I played it safe, what I mean is I did pay attention to my yearly physicals. That said, I wasn't all that vigilant or aggressive. I was in good shape. I could run. I'd been getting the yearly physical since my mid-30s and was very confident. Each time I visited my doctor, Dr. Elizabeth Torden, who practices in Asheville, each time I visited Dr. Torden, she gave me a clean bill of health, and if there was anything wrong, she would say, oh, we need to tweak this or tweak that, but mostly you're doing fine. Go out, spend another year, have a good time, I'll see you in 12 months. So off I would go and come back the next year and get the same report. Maybe hubris might play a bit of a role here. So as time went on, I came to expect a good report. I was thinking it won't happen to me. What could happen? Never really gave prostate health much of a thought. I really didn't know the function of the prostate gland. I knew it was there. I knew it was something that had something to do with the male functioning. That was about it. Like I said, I had a bit of hubris going on because I didn't think I would be affected by the aging process. I quickly learned that I was affected by it for sure. After all, we're all affected by the aging process, which begins the moment we're born. We start aging and we continue to do so until we take our last breath. It has nothing to do with our chronological age. In fact, the aging process is most visible 
from the moment the baby is born until four years old. It's the fastest aging process in the entire lifespan. Once you hit adulthood, it takes a lot more time to progress through the stages of life. So the aging process actually slows down. So you don't notice it as much. It's more incremental. So I was paying attention to my aging process. That said, because it is incremental for all of us, I wasn't as uh, inclined to be that, that worried about it. So 12 years ago, I showed up for my annual physical, which actually wasn't an annual physical because I dilly-dallied around and I was six months late, which means I was 18 months out. Now that's not a big deal. A lot of people, and you may be one of them, go to the doctor once every five years, get a checkup, everything's good, off you go. So here's the reason I mentioned my own hubris. In my previous physical 18 months prior, Dr. Torden had mentioned to me that my PSA, which means prostate-specific antigen numbers, had risen from 1.2 to 2.0. Dr. Torden assured me that even though a 0.08 PSA rise was a bit fast, there was nothing really to worry about other than just to pay attention, double-check the numbers when I came back a year later. So I felt pretty good. I wasn't really worried. I figured, what's a point or two? I had no idea that a point or two was dramatically significant when it came to a PSA rating. Now keep in mind, PSA only tells you something is going on. And I'm certainly no doctor, so I'm not exactly sure how it all works, other than Dr. Torden did say that if there's a lot of movement, say for example, if your PSA moves from 2.0 to 3.5 in a short period of time, that's an indication that something needs to be addressed, and it could possibly be prostate cancer. Not a guarantee, but could possibly be. So I had a bit of this information, but I really didn't realize exactly what any of it meant. I went on my merry way, and I for whatever reasons, and I don't know why, I decided, maybe it was because I was busy traveling or whatever, I didn't need to get my yearly physical the next round, so I waited for 18 months. So when I went in for my physical, so there I was, 18 months later, sitting in the chair waiting for Dr. Thornton to come into the room, and, and when she did, she didn't have her usual smile, she was a little more somber, and she said, well, I have some news for you, I think your PSA number is moving really more than it should, so I'm afraid I'm going to have to refer you to a urologist because you might have prostate cancer. Well, if you've ever had news like this, you have a sense of what it feels like. Let's say rug pulled out from under you, slipping on ice, surprised. I felt a little weak. I got a little pale. I sat down and thought, I'm going to die. And I also felt quite guilty and stupid for having waited the extra six months because I realized, as Dr. Torden explained, that prostate cancer was a slow-moving cancer, and if you catch it in time, it's fine. You just have to make sure you stay on top of your, your health and your care, and you can deal with almost anything that comes along. I was really feeling bad because I'd let the year pass and then added six months to it. So there I was thinking, well, that six months is going to be the difference between the cancer, if I in fact have it, spreading and the cancer not spreading. How stupid, I thought. And I berated myself and I felt really dumb 
And I'm a bit ashamed because I prided myself on keeping up with things. And here I was, remiss, hubris. I assumed everything was going to be okay. And because it really wasn't okay, I was going to have to change my plans, find a urologist. Hopefully I wouldn't have prostate cancer. Or if I did have it, I would have to address it. And I wanted to take action sooner than later. So it really wasn't okay. But I will tell you, and you probably have had this experience yourself, when something comes along that seems so burdensome, so surprising, so awful, or at least potentially awful. So when things like that come to pass, in the beginning you think, this is really, really terrible. As things unfold and start to take shape based on the new approach that you have to take because of whatever incident it it happened to be, in my case, of course it was the news that I might have prostate cancer. And I will tell you, I was a bit negative and hard on myself for a few weeks because I was really uncertain about what would happen and how it would all unfold. So I left Dr. Torden's office feeling, as I've already said, rather diminished. I went to the coffee shop, ordered a coffee, sat there and watched everybody come and go, smiling and happy. And I was a bit in shock, as you might imagine. And if you've had news like this yourself, you, you've you probably had a similar experience around feeling in shock, not quite knowing what to do. The first thing I decided to do, sitting there in that coffee shop, I decided I was going to keep this news secret. I didn't want anybody to know. Well, why would I do such a thing? I felt like I was weak. I felt like I somehow had failed myself. I didn't want people in my circle of friends to even know about my weakness. Fortunately, it was just a short, fleeting thought that lasted a day or so before I realized that whenever trouble comes, the best thing you can do is turn to the people who care about you and ask them for help. So with that in mind, I decided to ring up my friend Tara Meadows who was married and still is married to David DeHole. David's a urologist. I knew David and certainly knew Tara. We were friends. And I said, Tara, I have something I would like to talk to you about, or at least like to talk to David about. I think I might have prostate cancer. Well, Tara said, why don't you come over to our house for dinner tonight? And David will be glad to talk to you about that. Well, let's talk about a sense of relief. I certainly had one when Tara said, yeah, no problem. David will be happy to talk to you. That was my first inkling at how things would change for me as I moved through this process of trying to figure out what to do next. I learned to ask for help, and I learned when one asks for help, it's often given, and given with great generosity. So that evening I went over to Tara's house and David was there and Tara had already briefed him a bit on what was going on with me and we had a nice meal sitting around their kitchen counter and David then started to talk about what I needed to do in order to deal with this proposition and the thing he said first 
which I think is really important to know. He said, prostate cancer is a very slow-moving cancer. If you catch it in time, it's not going to ravage you in two or three months. In fact, it will take quite a while for it to actually get traction. And he encouraged me, saying, I think you probably are fine. You probably caught it in time. And he gave me some more encouragement. And he did say, well, if you do indeed have prostate cancer, you will have to go through some surgery and you will have to recover from it. And you won't be the same after the prostate surgery. Things will change for you. And he talked a bit about how sexuality changes because uh, the prostate gland is part of the sexual system men have. And I was listening and I was feeling a little relieved while at the same time a bit daunted thinking, my goodness, this could be pretty complicated and expensive and all of the rest. Fortunately, I had artist insurance. And what I mean by that is I was self-insured. I paid for my own insurance. It was a year after the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, came into play. And so I had been able to take advantage of that opportunity to buy some pretty decent health insurance. So I was feeling pretty good about myself. I thought, okay, I've taken care of things and I can afford it. And David encouraged me saying, okay, let's, let's think about what you need to do next. So here comes the big help. David said, well, as you know, I'm a urologist and my partner, Scott Donaldson, he and I have a practice in Hendersonville, North Carolina, and we do our work through Party Hospital. And I can ask Scott if he would like to take you on as a patient. David told me he didn't feel like he could take me as a patient because we were friends, but he was confident that Scott would do it. So I was thrilled, and I was also beginning to learn what happens when you ask for help amongst your friends. So David gave me Scott's number, and I left feeling still afraid and uncertain and scared and all of those things, but it was balanced out with a sense of community, with a sense that I did have people around who would help and with the confidence that I could ask others to help as well. I'll pause right here in this story to just encourage you, if you're having any kind of trouble at all, please, please do ask the people who care about you to help. So don't don't hold that back. So as I drove home after leaving David's house, I, I was feeling okay about it. And the next day I did indeed call the office and made an appointment to see Scott and David gave Scott the heads up that I was coming in. So when I showed up a couple of days later for the appointment, I was taken back to the examination room and I sat in a sunny chair and it was a nice room and I waited for, for Scott to come. And I didn't know him. I called him Dr. Donaldson. I later got to know him. That's why I now refer to him as Scott. And I was reading a book, a poetry book by Roger Bonaragar, Gala, I think it was called. And I was passing the time feeling pretty good about having taken some actions. And here's where the poetry part comes in. I have written poetry for many, many years. I've been in the creative realms for a long time. And I knew when I got that news from Dr. Torden that it might be a rough road, but I could soften the road by practicing some of the artistic skills and, and disciplines that I had acquired over the years, like, for example, writing poetry, or for that matter, reading poetry. There's a lot of value in just reading something that has depth and meaning and can communicate with you on more than just a superficial level. So there I sat in the office and Scott popped in. Now Scott Donaldson, Dr. Scott Donaldson, 
had a smile on his face, and he was wearing, I believe it was a bow tie. If he hadn't been a doctor, he could have been a character in a John Grisham courtroom novel. And he said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm reading a poem. He said, really? I like poetry. Uh, let, me, let me see the book. So I handed him the book, and he flipped through it and read a few lines and said, this is really great. And then we struck up a conversation about writing and a conversation about podcasting and a conversation about reading your work in public. And he was telling me how much he loved poetry and how much he loved to write and how he was doing all these things with writing. And I was telling him all about what I did. And we hit it off. It was great fun. And we forgot for a moment that we were supposed to be there for serious business. And we were there for serious business. So after maybe 10 minutes or so of this, I said, well, we should probably get down to business. I'm here to find out about uh, whether I have prostate cancer or not. So Scott told me basically the same thing David had told me a couple of days prior. And he encouraged me, saying, this will be fine. I've done this many, many times. This is my specialty. And one of the things I liked about Scott, he didn't sugarcoat. He said, yes, you could really be in big trouble here. I think you probably are not in big trouble because it sounds like everything will work out fine because you're on time, you caught it on time, so not to worry. So from that point forward, Scott became my physician, my, my urologist, and he moved me through what was necessary in order for me to find out what I needed to do next. I ended up having to have a biopsy. The biopsy came back. Well, guess what? You probably already figured it out. I had prostate cancer. Scott called me. He said, well, I have news for you. You probably were already expecting this news. Your, your test came back, and it's positive for prostate cancer. The good news is it's confined to the prostate gland. Based on my experience, I suspect it has not jumped the margins and started to spread. So you're in good shape. So let's go ahead and schedule your surgery. And we did just that. So from the time I went to see Dr. Torden and she suspected I might have prostate cancer until the day of my surgery, which was the last day of March, it was about a two-month spread. And I was nervous the whole time. It really was tense for me. And my comfort came from my friends. My comfort came from knowing at least I'm taking action. I had to reorganize so much. I had to cancel uh, appearances. I had a ticket to go to France. I was scheduled to do a show with my good friend Walter Parks, who offers us the theme song every week on this show. I was going to present poetry and music with Walter in a beautiful apartment in the in the 6th in Paris and I had to cancel all of it and I really didn't like having to change my plans I was angry about it but not for long I realized hey this is a new adventure I might as well give myself into it and I'd also like to say that my partner Tish Vallez whom I had been with for many many years was the Really, the first person I told, actually, probably before I called Tara, 
I, I felt it was necessary to tell Tish because we were so close, and she was a bit in shock as well because she didn't know either. And then later that day, I did call Tara. So Tish was on the scene with me. She came down from New York. We were living in New York at the time, actually, and I was going back and forth from New York to Asheville, and she came down from New York to, to be with me to help me work through all of the wiggly, wiggly things that you have to work through when you're going to do a surgery or any kind of big life change. So by the time I got to the last day of March, when the surgery was scheduled, everything was in order. So early on the afternoon of the last day of March, I went into the operating room and Scott performed the surgery. I think David DeHole may have been in the room as well. I'm not sure, but I do know Scott was in there. And one of the pitches that Scott made for me, he said, you have some choices here. You can have radiation, you can have freezing, you can have robotics, or I can just slice you open and go in and, and cut things out uh, by hand, which I've done many, many times. Now, things have changed a bit since then. I chose the by hand, not the robotics. And the reason why is Scott said, he trusted the robotics in the hands of the right people. It was a great tool. In the hands of a beginner, not so much. He assured me he was not a beginner. And one of the things he said, I can go in and I can open you up and I can look and see where everything is. And I've done this so much that I know what to take and I know what to leave and I know how to be careful. So I advise you to let me do that. So when that afternoon when I went into surgery, that's what Scott did. So I woke up later in the day, in the evening, and I was groggy and I was there in my hospital bed. Tish was there with me. And that was the beginning of the healing process. So if you recall, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, my new poetry book, 100 Days, subtitle, Healing After Cancer. So the first entry in the book happened April 1st while I was there in the hospital. And here's how it played out. So after a bit of a restless night, I woke up and it was April 1st. And there I was in the hospital bed. I had my Sony field recorder with me. Now, why would I have a Sony field recorder in the bed with me? Well, I like recording sound. And somehow I brought it along thinking, well, I won't have anything else to do except lie in the hospital bed. I might as well have my recorder with me. And Tish said, you know, this is April 1st. It's April is poetry month. And, you know, poets write 30 poems in 30 days. And since you're a poet and since you don't have anything else to do but lie in the bed and heal... Maybe you could write a poem. Maybe you could do 30 poems in 30 days. And I thought that was a terrific idea. So I said, well, I don't, I don't, I, don't, I can't write. I was, I was very groggy, as you might imagine, and a bit out of it, really. And she said, well, if you don't want to write one, why don't you just dictate it into your recorder? And, and that's exactly what I did. And when I finished dictating the first poem, Tish transcribed it. And she suggested, why don't you put it online? Put it on Facebook. Let people read it. Keep up with the news about your recovery. So I figured, why not? I'll write a few poems. I might not get through 30. I won't have the patience or the resolve or whatever to do it. But I can do two or three. And I really didn't have anything else to do. And I will tell you this. 
when I wrote that first poem, I felt more relevant. I felt more engaged. I felt more like myself. And I realized by just the simple act of dictating the poem, the simple act of creativity, I was much less stressed about the surgery and certainly about the healing. So after I wrote the first poem, I put it on Facebook and decided, well, I'll take another run at it on day two and see what happens. So here's the first poem I wrote, just in case you're curious. It's titled, After Surgery. I was still whole. So little had gone from my body. Groggy after going in and out of morphine sleep, I looked around my hospital room. Clock on the wall, 8.30 a.m. Blue curtain covered the door. Last night I was warm and felt no pain. Tish slept beside me in a chair. I gave myself over to being loved, a miracle we all deserve. What a strange, strange relief it was to live and breathe, to feel my mouth so dry, all I wanted was ice. And I only spent one full day in the hospital, day one after surgery, and two nights. And so on the morning of the second day, I wrote my second poem. And, and here it is, just to give you a contrast between how things slightly shifted from the first day to the second day. The second day's poem is titled, How Thunder Runs. Restless on clean sheets, I woke from the second night of my hospital stay thinking of how thunder runs through everyone's life. Not lightning, thunder. The boom, an expression of emergence. Last night, I, I dreamed a friend pulled me from the sea. Thunder rumbled. I woke, looked out the window, and realized that thunder has a pearl-like quality. Every boom is singular, like explosions you hear in a war zone. But that's not thunder. That's the sound of a whale with a broken back. My back is not broken. There are no wars here. So I wrote that second poem in the morning of the second day, and by 1 p.m. or so, I was out of the hospital and headed to my good friend A.D. Anderson's house. Tish was driving, and A.D. had agreed to give me a week or two to be there at his place, which sat on a knoll atop a long yard that swept down to Beetree Road. At the end of A.D.'s drive, if you take a left on Beetree Road, it'll take you out to the main highway, which runs past Warren Wilson College. If you take a right on Beetree Road, it will take you to the end of the road, where you will find the Beetree Reservoir, which is part of the Asheville Watershed, which provides water for the Buckham County City of Asheville area. And here we are with another good example of what happens when you take the time to reach out to your friends and ask your friends for help. So I settled into A.D.'s house on the second day after my surgery. Tish helped me arrange things. A.D. was very happy to make a meal, and I settled in. And the next day, I wrote my third poem. My goal was to write 30 poems in 30 days. By this point, I'd realized it was a doable proposition. I liked the idea of getting up every morning with something to do that was connected to what I had always done. You might think when disruption comes, you have to change everything, and it's true. Disruption does cause big changes. That said, a lot of the core of who you are actually always stays the same. And when you connect to that core, whatever it is, 
the stuff that changes around you becomes a lot easier to manage and to handle. After all, disruption is disruption and it's unfamiliar when it happens. So when you stay connected to the familiar things you know, and for me, the familiar thing was to write something every day. And when I was generating the work, I thought about it from the point of view of a poem, and yet I also understood what I was writing about was more than me attempting to write a poem. I was writing a report from the field, trying to get the small little details into my small little report, details that would be meaningful to anyone who read the piece, also details that were meaningful to me because in that moment I noticed them. So this was about awareness as much as it was about me getting something down. And as you know, if you've tried to make anything from breakfast in the morning all the way to building a house and everything in between, all the things you put together start from that messy point of view. And from the mess rises the order. So mess is currency, mess is a good thing, and when I was generating these pieces, I was sitting in the mess of my thoughts, putting something together which turned into an organized piece that I posted every day. I spent two weeks at A.D.'s house, which was fine. I enjoyed every minute of it, and even though the healing seemed slow day to day, time went fairly fast. I did begin to feel a bit of a pressure to get something written and to post it, so I had a job in the midst of all of it. And that's why, again, I encourage you, when you face some rough times, to try to figure out a way to engage yourself in the things that you hold dear. And when that happens, it's a bit like medicine. I don't know how that works. Maybe it's all in my imagination. But it does make one feel good, and it probably will make you feel good, as it did me. So here's the poem I wrote on the 13th day. It'll give you a feel for A.D.'s house and the environment that was surrounding his house on that hill above Bee Tree Road. So here goes. The poem is titled, A Good Pig. Dogwoods bloomed beside A.D.'s wind-worn shed where a brown sign over the door said, Sweet Surrender. Thirteen days ago, I could hardly move. Today I drove to the grocery, made tea, washed dishes, and laughed at Tish's new poem, How to Find a Good Pig. I napped in the sun and dreamed of living by the sea in a cottage with wind chimes and blue tiles. I woke and thought, I'm content for now on this hillside, where doors swing open, chocolate waits on the table, and I can chuckle about what it takes for one to find a good pig. So on the sixteenth day of my healing process, I left A.D.'s house and went to some other friends at Asheville who had also offered me shelter, Andrew and Chiwa. What I didn't realize when I first started to do the poems and to make these entries, I didn't realize that I would do a hundred poems in a hundred days. I thought I would just do thirty and that would be that. And what surprised me was how quickly the healing actually started to happen. So I began to think, well, this is going to be a lot more interesting than I thought it was. 
And so on the thirtieth day, I had to make a decision. Well, do I continue on? And I thought, well, if I continue on, I can go to fifty? No, maybe, how about a hundred? And then I realized a hundred was a great number. A hundred is a fairly large number. And I thought, well, if you do one poem a day for a hundred days, not only will you have a hundred pieces to publish, you will also have a really good report that will chronicle the, the healing process, but not so much the healing process, just the day-to-day -day activities that happened during that time. And that was what my thought process was leading me to do. So on day 30, I had to make the decision, do I go for 100 or do I just stop here? As you already know, I decided to go for 100. So here's the poem I wrote on the 30th day, which began the process for the other 70 poems that were yet to come. And this poem is titled, As Time Goes By. Yesterday, William and Kate married. Thousands cheered when Kate in her royal gown and William in his bright uniform drove away in their top-down Aston Martin. One afternoon, while Tish and I walked along the Thames, I told her about my second wedding. I wore a beige suit. Nina wore an ivory dress. We drove away in a Toyota Corona station wagon. The marriage lasted 18 months. Twenty years later, in Accra, Ghana, the room swayed at Chester's Bar Bistro while Jimmy's jazz band played as time goes by. That night in Accra, I imagined I was Rick at his place in Casablanca, saying to Sam at his upright piano, You played it for her, you can play it for me. If she can stand it, I can. So, as you just heard, the poem that I wrote on the 30th day had more to do with my memoir memories than what was going on right in front of me, also what was going on with the healing process. So many of the poems appearing in the series as I went through this whole exploration have very little to do with healing or cancer or even in the moment. That said, a lot of them do as well. It was an interesting experience to go through each day plucking just a little bit from from what was in the day and making a little small story out of it. And the other thing I did with these hundred poems, I added a question at the end of each poem. And I haven't mentioned that yet. So not only do we have 100 poems, we have 100 writing prompts. So this book has taken on a much different aspect than just a poetry book with poems in it, which I've done before. But this one has something else, and I'm really excited when it comes out in June, which is coming up in a couple of months. I, this is March now. June will be coming. March, April, May, June. I'm excited to see what will happen with the reception and what people will do with it. So after I left Andrew and Chiwas, I went out to Camp Rockmont and did a week there with a group of artists who gathered. And part of my admission to the gathering for the week, I volunteered to drive people back and forth from the airport, the speakers who were coming for the gathering. So after 30 days of recovery, I had a job. I was driving. So if you are wondering how fast you can recover, you can get back on your feet fairly, fairly quickly. I still had 
lots of, of awareness of what had happened to me. That said, I could move and nobody knew I had had surgery. I was really back on my feet and pretty happy to have that happen. So after I did the gig at Camp Rockmont and I wrote some poems about Camp Rockmont, like this very short little poem I wrote on the 34th day, The Indefinite Universe, this morning... Paul Laffoli, a visionary artist, declared, The indefinite universe has no end. Rain woke me last night. My belly hurt. I lay awake watching a galaxy of sticky stars glow on the ceiling. My thoughts drifted to my father's funeral. At his burial site, I scattered dirt over his coffin. After the benediction, my brother David told me that when the paramedics hurried my father to the ambulance, his last words were, I'm okay. I haven't visited his grave since that April afternoon in 1996. Perhaps it's time. So, the visionary artist says, the indefinite universe has no end, and that takes my thoughts to the day I attended my father's funeral and tossed dirt into his grave. So, going from the visionary artist to the scene at my father's graveside, is an imaginative leap, and we all have that capacity. So after doing the volunteer work, I went to the Leaf Festival, which was also held at Camp Rockmont, and I was able to host a three-hour Saturday night poetry slam at Eden Hall for an audience of around 400 people or so. I admit, I was a little bit wobbly, and I was determined to do it, and I did it, and it felt good just to keep moving. So after that, I took my leave of Western North Carolina, got on a flight out of Asheville through Chicago, and ended up in Taos for three weeks. I always love coming to Taos in the summer, and I decided that I wouldn't let my healing process get in the way of the things that I normally did. And I also had a little teaching gig in Taos that three weeks, so I was there for a little bit of work. Here we are, back on the feet again. So in Taos, I switched my vibe from the spring and the flowers and the mockingbirds and the trees to the environment in the in the southwest the taos environment and during my healing time there was a very favorite cafe there called wired cafe it's no longer in taos it's been closed but during the healing three weeks I was in Taos, I spent many an afternoon at Wired Cafe and loved the, loved the scene. It was really great. And so on day 52, this is the poem I wrote about Wired Cafe. It's titled Hallelujah. Earlier this afternoon at Wired Cafe, a woman leaned on her mountain bike, puffed her American Spirit cigarette, and watched 90-year-old Stan play speed chess with a Renaissance Fair regular who looked like Robin Hood. I noticed the koi fish were outgrowing their shallow pond. They'll freeze when December comes, I thought. Leonard Cohen sang hallelujah over the speakers. I asked Dave, the owner, what became of Elvis, the peacock, who vanished last week? Maybe the coyotes got him, Dave said. We both agreed when something's gone, there's no way to get it back. Leonard Cohen continued to sing hallelujah, hallelujah. I sang along to no one in particular. And then on day 57, still at Wired Cafe at a corner table, I wrote this very short little piece titled Stare into the Perfect. The ease of Taos continues. 
I've gained much contentment from the magpies in the trees and much camaraderie with the regulars here at Wired Cafe who would believe me if I told them I was eating plums inside the bounty of my dreams. Dreams belong to this land. Far away, up in the mountains, a young shepherd tends his flock. He stares into the perfect openness of passing hours. His voice is a deer coming out of a tree. I see everything when they are allowed to look. I wonder, do you agree that I see everything when they are allowed to look? Do your eyes see everything when you allow your eyes to look? Probably you don't see everything, and you might not see a deer coming out of a tree. That said, you will see things when you look that you didn't expect to see, and that's the whole point of all of this. So, as I pass my time in Taos, I enjoyed every minute of it, as I always do. And then on day 69, after spending three weeks or so in Taos, I departed for New York, left the mountains behind, and headed to the big city, which provided me a very different environment to be in and work in. By this point, I was fairly well back on my feet. You could say I had healed and I was able to do most everything that I wanted to do. Even so, Scott Donaldson had told me it would take about a year for me to really get through the entire healing process. But by the time the two and a half months had worked their way through my life and I had worked my way through the two and a half months, I was doing pretty well. Again, when you have to face something like this, if you give yourself a growing season, which is three months, around 100 days, a little bit more if you count the 100 days, you will find that your garden will grow back. You will have a harvest to to collect rather than a barren ground to work with. So it takes a little bit of time to get yourself back in, on your feet. So in New York, I was on my feet. I was walking around. I was doing the things I wanted to do. I was going to some meetings. Tish and I were enjoying uh, each other's company. And all in all, it was a, a very interesting, interesting time. And we were staying with her friend, M.J. Butler. So once again, M.J. had opened her house to not only Tish, she also invited me to come as well. And we had a nice room, and we were living on 29th Street between 2nd and 3rd in, in Manhattan. And so by then, I had realized, well, okay, I'll be able to go with my 100 poems in 100 days. And I was really enjoying it. I had the stride, if you will. And so the evening before day 71, Tish and I were walking around Washington Square Park. And on day 71, after we spent the time the evening prior in Washington Square Park, I wrote this poem. It's titled, One-Eyed Chess Player. My healing that started in the Carolina rain and continued under the Taos sky carries on in this city that roars perfection, imperfection, identity, doubt, ambition, and despair. Last night a storm rattled food carts, shook umbrellas, slowed cars, and forced Tish and me to huddle next to a one-eyed chess player under the ark in Washington Square Park. While we waited for the storm to pass, I recited a poem. Never ask children about the language of steel, laws, horsepower, and smoke. Ask instead why grass is fur on a tiger's back. 
Never ask why children race down sidewalks faster than their fathers, chasing behind them under summer maples. Run, lad, run, your daddy will not let the big bears eat you. The boy flies out of his shoes. He will recall this running for the rest of his life, and how later, after supper, his father gave him an illustrated comic book that told him why the sun was more than a ball of fire. And that experience with a one-eyed chess player happened on day 71, and for the rest of the time in New York, going up to the hundred days, I was able to deliver a poem a day, post it on Facebook, and have folks respond to it. And I managed to do that midnight every time. Midnight on the day I wanted to write, I put the poem up, and by the time I got to 90, 91, 92, 93, I knew that the 100 poems were, were going to happen, and I was back on my feet. So by the time the 100th day rolled around on July the 9th, I had 100 poems. And here's the final poem, number 100, titled Slightly Altered. Just west of Spring Street, I paused under a maple for a phone conversation with my friend Julia Cameron in Santa Fe, who told me a grassland whiptailed lizard had just scurried over her rug paused beside the trash can, then darted out of her kitchen door into the desert, perhaps to dig for termites or find shelter under a log in the noonday sun. I have found refuge over the past 100 days in the Appalachian Mountains around Asheville, in the high Taos Desert, and in New York City. I trust more now than ever in what moonlight can do. I am not the same man I was before my surgery, nor will I ever be. And that was the end of my 100-day goal, which I achieved. And afterwards, I decided to go back and re-edit the poems, turn them into publishable pieces, which I did. And about six or eight months later, I self-published the book called Looking at Light on Amazon. And lo and behold, it did pretty well. I didn't promote it so much. I tend to do my creative work and then after I get it done, I promote it a little bit, but maybe not as much as I could. Even so, people did find it on Amazon and I did get some reports from folks who said, gee, this is really an interesting book for me. I bought it because my husband has prostate cancer or had prostate cancer, or I bought it because it reinforced my sense of healing for my own dilemma that I had, my own health dilemma. And I had plenty of reports like that. And so the book went on really rather well for eight, nine years or so. And then Andrea Watson at Three A Tao's Press approached me and she said, do you have anything that I could publish? She said, I like the way you present your work. I'm curious. And I said, well, I have this little book that I wrote. 10 years ago, 100 Poems in 100 Days, titled Looking at Light. I can let you take a look at it and see what you think. Uh, so I gave her the book, and she looked it over, and she came back to me and said, you know, I think we can work with this. You will have to do some revision. You will have to work the poems a bit more to get it up to speed, but I would like to publish it. Are you willing to do that work? And I agreed. I said, okay, fine. Sounds like a great opportunity. I took the manuscript that I had self-published, I laid it out by way of printing it on my printer, and I started working the poems. Poem number one, poem number two, poem number three. And when I 
originally published it as looking at light, I had published the poems or the pieces in prose form. I didn't lay them out with line breaks. Andrea Watson asked me to go back and redo each one, and she wanted me to do as many line breaks as I could, so many of the pieces would look like poetry and, and have more of a poetic sense, because when you do line breaks and you have line endings and you have the poem wrap around, it starts to have more of a jazzy kind of musical rhythm to it than when it's just laid out as prose. So it becomes a poem because there's some intention around how you want to make it look on the page. So I did just that and managed to take a little more time than I thought to do it. It took a while, actually. I thought it would be easy, but it turned out to not be quite as easy as I thought it was. But that was all satisfying because it gave me a way to reconnect with something that had happened to me 10 years prior. And as I was processing these pieces, I realized that time doesn't matter when it comes to this sort of approach. Didn't matter whether it had been 10 years ago or whether it had been a month prior. We healed in the same way. The healing process has an eternal aspect about it. It's very creative, the healing process, just like the entire universe is very creative. So as I proceeded with my editing, I finally got it done. And I turned it in, and Andrea came back with some questions, and we went back and forth and back and forth. Finally, we got it to the point where we felt like it would work as a published book. And she gave me an announcement that was really great. She said, you know, my son who teaches design at Parsons in New York City would like to do the interior and the exterior design for this book. And I was thrilled. And about two and a half, three weeks ago, I saw the design that William Watson did. And I have to tell you, that fellow knows the meaning of design. So I'm very, very pleased with the interior and exterior design of the book. And I'm pleased, as you can tell, with this process. So I encourage you to, to pick up whatever it is you'd like to do and, and take the similar vibe, take the similar approach that I took and, and make something happen for yourself. You'll be surprised at where it leads you and, and where it takes you and the insights that you will get, just as it really has surprised me. I've learned a lot, and I'm grateful now, 12 years later, after my prostate surgery healing has happened, and I'm still very aware that it happened. We remember our trauma, and we remember all these moments in our lives, but I'm very pleased to say that so far, so good. I caught it on time. It hasn't returned. I know there are a lot of people out there that don't have that same experience. My sister just finished with, with a, a bout of cancer. Everything is fine right now. So cancer is all around us. We all have experienced it in one way or another. We all know somebody who has to deal with cancer in one way or another, as well as all the other health conditions. Like I said at the very beginning of this hour that we've now spent, if I had a magic wand and I could be sovereign of the world, I would just wave that wand over the world and wish everybody complete comprehensive health care all the people all over the world. And my goodness, if we had that, we would have something to think about, something to talk about, 
and something to be really proud about. Maybe one day that will come to pass. But what has come to pass right now, we have arrived at the time for me to say goodbye to you and for me to say thank you for listening to my poems and my story about healing. I really do appreciate it. And I'd just like to say that you've been tuned in to the Imaginative Storm Twice Five Miles Radio Podcast. I'm your host, James Nave. We always broadcast this show first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7 and we stream it online WPVMFM.org the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico thank you Walter Parks for our theme song WalterParks.com if you are interested in any more of Walter's music I love Walter's music I bet you will too thank you Devine Dial for managing WPVMFM we appreciate And if you would like to connect with me, I would love to hear from you on nave at jamesnave.com. And if you would like to learn more about my new book, 100 Days, you can email me, nave at jamesnave.com. As I said, that's my email, and I'll be glad to add your name to my mailing list. It's my hope this book will be of service to people. People will be able to read it and have a sense of how they would like to interact with their own healing, their own creativity, and also might be a little bit of a, a help for those of you out there who who have somebody you're caring for right now. It'll give you a little bit of strength, maybe. So, on that note, thanks again for tuning in, and I really do appreciate it. And hey, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.